to go. Please turn to his word. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, instructive, wonderfully happy-making word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have laid out right here in this passage. And it's there on the page. It means what it says. But please don't leave us alone. Caused by your Spirit for our hearts to have ears to hear and a hearts to have eyes to see that produces nothing less than rest, peace, faith, and joy in your Son, in your glory, in your mercy, in your love. So help me to that end unfold what is here in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember the large backdrop of the book of Hebrews that we've been in for, I don't know, pushing a year, I think. He's writing to Jewish, culturally Jewish, raised Jewish, converted to Jesus, Christian people. And He's doing so because it's become evident that they are being tempted culturally, pressured to turn back to the old covenant system and put their trust in it. And so throughout this letter, he has been hammering home the truth of the all-sufficiency of Jesus and his sacrificial Therefore, he's warning to turn to anything other than 
Christ for salvation is eternal suicide. Jesus alone fulfills everything that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the tabernacle and the temple all pointed to. He's the only hope for salvation from the judgment to come. The book of Hebrews, in other words, say it this way. It's been telling a story. It's, it's a narrative. It's, it's a story here in, in Hebrews, a synopsis of the whole scripture, with the interpretation, its meaning. It's a story on how to understand your existence. How to understand the world, the universe, your life. Remember how he began it. God spoke. He's a storyteller. He, he spoke long ago in many different ways, through many different human beings who were his prophets telling the story. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. It's a story. Now, I remember years ago when I was teaching my four oldest kids as homeschool kids ancient history. And I was reading to them an Egyptian myth about the god Osiris okay, and, and his nasty brother set. It was their story. It was a narrative to explain why the Nile River overflowed its banks every year. Don't you see, Set was jealous of his older brother who's going to become king, and so Set murders him and puts him in a box, in a coffin, and floats him down. The river, and the, the river, the Nile, was grieved and weeped and cried, and it dried up until later when that coffin was found, it was opened, and then he rose from the dead, and the Nile rejoiced, and it continued to fill up, and it would overflow, and it continued to overflow every year. That's why the Nile overflows and becomes very fertile land to grow crops. And I remember my son Justin, he was probably eight or nine at the time, asked in all sincerity, like an eight-year-old ought, did that really happen? And I said, no. It's a myth. A myth is a story which doesn't need to be objectively or historically true. A myth just needs to work. It's a story to help people place themselves in some kind of a, a narrative of, of structure, of meaning, of order in the world. And so I told my kids, look, as we study 
history, we're, we're also studying the myths or the narratives that gave them meaning because those myths are, are grids through which they see, the, interpret the world. And there are ancient myths. There are modern myths. Hollywood loves to make them. Once in a while, they make a real movie. Oh, not that I don't enjoy those myths. Okay. My kids force me to watch them. Okay. But people need, they need narratives. They need stories to place themselves in. So they feel they have structure. They have meaning. But as I told my kids back then, I say it this morning, just because people believe in certain stories, their belief doesn't make those stories true. In the actual sense of that's what really happened. And that goes for the Egyptian god Osiris. And it goes for the Greek god Zeus. And it goes for the myth of Hercules. And it goes for all the gods of Hinduism. And it goes for the god of Islam. And it also goes for the narrative of Jesus of Nazareth. And it goes for our passage that we're looking at this morning. My believing in the gospel narrative, in the good news story of Jesus, with its interpretive meaning in our passage, that does not make it true. It's either true or it's not true, whether a person believes it or not. The Bible and the book of Hebrews, they're not claiming that here's another myth. Here's another narrative. Here's another story, another option to choose from in which you can construct your life and your family and your city and your culture. If this is all that these strange words are in our passage, then we're wasting our time. The story of Israel and the tabernacle, and then eventually the temple with all of its furniture, and the laver, and the table of showbread, and the candlestick, and all sprinkled with blood by Moses, and all the sacrifices throughout those centuries. And Christ then comes as the fulfillment of it all. They are consciously describing real persons and actual historical events. The Old and the New Testament, they're claiming that the one true creator of all things revealed himself throughout history, recorded in the scripture and recorded in this text with the interpretation of it. Our text reveals then an unseen world. It reveals an unseen heavenly realm that is more real than anything 
our five senses can experience. It's more real. It's more exciting. It's more terrifying than all the myths of the world combined. And it is the one central truth of our existence. So, in the Bible, we have this narrative that tells us for 1,400 years, God instructed and willed a particular people to picture what His Son will do when He finally sends Him. To give a foretaste or a shadow or a pointer through all of the bloody animal sacrifices and the worship of the tabernacle and the temple through the priesthood. So, if you're there, chapter 9 of Hebrews, notice verse 23 says, all these things, which he's referring to what he just talked about, all the furnishings in the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself being sprinkled with blood. All, all of those things of the Old Testament worship, he says they were copies of the greater reality in heaven. And as copies, we saw and you see in Exodus and that, that, that he was referring to, they can be ceremonially cleansed, made clean, made, made acceptable by animal blood, which is also not the real. It's a copy. So let's, let's actually start reading verse 22 and get the flow into verse 23. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Moses sprinkling blood on everything. But then he says that these animal sacrifices, their blood are utterly inadequate to deal with the heavenly reality. In God, the heavenly things. Notice the contrast again in verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Here's the contrast. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. Than these. 
to deal with the uncreated, real tabernacle. Vessels in heaven, furnitures in heaven. There will have to be better sacrifices than the animals. These heavenly things, he says, will have to be cleansed with better sacrifices than the blood of animals by the blood of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, I hope you kind of paused because if we're reading carefully, it says that the heavenly holy place needs to be cleansed with blood. What in the world? Read it again. Thus it was necessary for the copies on earth of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the blood rites of sprinkling. But the heavenly things themselves with, what do you mean, with what? You're supposed to assume what he said in the first. The heavenly things themselves to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. That's the flow. So is heaven defiled? Why does heaven need to be cleansed? I think the answer is in the next verse, verse 24. So why did Jesus enter into heaven itself with better sacrifices? So he makes that comment in verse 23. Verse 24, he says, there, okay, 23, here's the general statement. 23, let me unfold that for you, is what he's doing. And notice that as we read it, in the second part of verse 24, there's a purpose clause. Here's my literal translation. In order to now appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's why it needs to be cleansed. Cleansing needs to happen. Let's read verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but He has entered into heaven itself, in order to, it's an infinitive purpose clause in the Greek, in order to now, in the presence of God, be on our behalf for us. Those words, on our behalf, give the answer to why there has to be Cleansing in the presence of God for us. Because in prayer, you're going there. 
And in the future and in the resurrection, you're going to be there. That's why. This world is filled with people with what I just said means nothing to them. But by God's grace, there are many. And if you are one, if by his grace, you are aware of your embedded sinful nature. If you're aware of the depths, the core of your being and even acting those things out of your own sin, then this is an extraordinarily encouraging text. Verse 24 says that Christ has entered heaven with far better sacrifice than the blood of animals. And He's done it in order to now, 30 years after the cross when He's writing, or 300 years after, or 2,000 today, now Jesus is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. This means Jesus, He's right there in His humanity right now before the face of God. Meaning, with His blood sacrifice as the cleansing agent for all whom He brings to God's presence. That heavenly tabernacle is cleansed so that we sinners, Old Testament imagery, Unclean sinners would be made clean, would be acceptable in the presence of God. It is we who need cleansing. And to, to the degree that if we walked into heaven, God's presence to, to the degree that we would we would defile that place it is to that degree that Christ cleanses heaven and don't miss the word again the word now it's there clear in the Greek noon or none however you want to say it now, now, right now, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What he's doing, speaking to his fellow believers, and he is to us today, he's saying that you, this very weak, you who will feel unworthy. 
dirty and be very conscious of your present sinfulness and undoneness. He says, we know that, that if we entered into God's presence in prayer or bodily, and we, we go there just as ourselves, apart from the cleansing blood of Christ, we know we would pollute But Jesus is right now there in the presence of God. This, this is an invitation daily to not turn away from God in prayer because of how you may have defiled yourself yesterday. God is saying, come to me. Yes, you, unclean, defiled, dirty ones, come. Because my son is ever before me on your behalf. He has not died in vain. He, he has entered into the holiest of all places not to keep sinners out, but to make them clean so that you can be with me, the Father says, in perfect holiness forever. That's why Jesus said in Luke 5, I did not come to call the righteous. I came in order to call sinners to repentance. Oh, what a Savior. Then, Notice down in the passage in verses 25 to 26, he goes on now and he describes how Jesus achieved this purification of defiled sinners. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places on the Day of Atonement every year with blood not his own, for then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, I mean, or in other words, literally, now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Point is that to come into God's presence is not ever to be taken for granted. 
There are myths everywhere. One of the greatest places to hear a myth is to go to funerals this week throughout the South Bay. Myths are told. The myth that, well, your life, whether you have faith in the blood of Christ or not, whether you have been miraculously changed or called to that faith. No, 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 no. There's only one thing you need to do in order to be ushered into the loving presence of God forever. And that only thing you need to do, here's the myth, is die. But God is holy. He is perfectly just. And if you're a criminal, <laughs> that's bad news. He hates sin. He lives in absolute holiness and perfection. It's his being. And yet, the whole story of the Bible, the whole narrative, the whole book of Hebrews that we're reading through slowly Sunday after Sunday is all saying how it is that such a holy God can and does welcome dirty, sinful people into His presence. How can He do this? That's what the biblical narrative is about. That, that's what biblical history, not, not myth, but the history of God breaking into this finite world and revealing Himself and His ways, that's what it's all about. And verse 25 says that if Christ followed the pattern of the Aaronic priesthood on the Day of Atonement, then He would have had to die every year since the very foundation of the world. But the text says, no way. Because if Jesus had to die over and over, and over again for millennia, then that would testify that there is no infinite value to God's Son and His sacrifice. That's why verse 26 ends with a description of how Christ really did it. How He really made the sacrifice that is great enough to cleanse all defiled sinners who would hear His call to enter into eternal fellowship with God. Here it is. Second part, verse 26. But as it is, 
Jesus has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages, in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Okay, let's spend the rest of our time and just take that apart so that worship rises. First, Christ Jesus did this great work once. That's it. His point is that His sacrifice is so great that it does not ever, ever, ever need to be repeated. Not even for all of the saved, the redeemed, going from before Christ came all the way back to the beginning of the creation of man and all the way to the future second coming of Christ. Once was enough. It was so great that it cannot ever be improved upon. It was huge enough, his sacrifice, to purchase Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And he raised us up with Him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Once was enough. And then it says, Christ, He has appeared and done all this at the end of the ages. The coming of Jesus in His incarnation and His death and His resurrection is not just another link in the chain of human history. It is the climax of history. The biblical view on this is that the coming, the first coming, Christmas, the incarnation of Christ and His once for all sacrifice and being raised from the dead, that first coming and His second coming, which has not happened yet, and you'll see it two verses later next week. We'll get into that, verse 28. That, that, that is all of one whole piece. 
The end of the ages has come upon us with Christ. It's one great closing act of the end of history until the beginning of the unending, eternal, resurrected realm. We've been in the last days since the dawning coming of Jesus as a human being. The end of the ages were ushered in by that decisive incarnation and death and resurrection, and it will be capped off at the second coming. Actually, just, just read just for a second. Jump down two verses. I know we're not there yet. We'll get there next week, but verse 28. And so Christ... Having, having been offered once, first coming here, to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, the second coming, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Once, at the end of the ages, and then thirdly, he says, what is it that he did? What is that once? He sacrificed himself. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, not by the blood of another or of an animal, but it was the sacrifice of the most valuable person in existence, the eternal Son of God. Don't ever be arrogant and think that the evilness of your sin is greater than the value of Jesus's blood. And I mean it. We are arrogant when we do that. Remember what he said in verse 14, chapter 9. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It only took once. He did it at the end of the ages. What did he do? He sacrificed himself. Why? In order to put away sin. The entirety of the sin issue, the entirety, if you are in Christ, the entirety of your sin issue, from nature to actions, has been taken care of. He put it 
away. All Christians are desperate to chew on that in their daily lives. In their battle, the battle of faith, the battle of trusting Him, the battle against our innate sinful flesh that dwells still with us in the context of marriage or parenting and doing business in the world, treating neighbors. And what you do with your mind. Or the besetting sins that are unique to all of us that we have to deal with in our brokenness. In one act. The sacrifice of himself. Which is the centerpiece of the ages. The eternal Son of God in true humanity put away sin. All the sins of all who would ever believe. All the sins of all who will be called. They're canceled. Forever. And that's what you tell people. That's why Bob and Matt and Justin do an evangelism table. Tell them. Let them know. Because this, okay. I've turned my kids on to Jordan Peterson. It's good. He's got a lot of insight and wisdom on lots of stuff. Very powerful intellect. He's even doing a Bible project now. But right now, for Peterson, this is the greatest of all myths. Because it works. That's not Christianity. This is not just another narrative, just another story or a myth from which to choose of all the other myths in order to do better in life. If this is not true, in other words, if it's not reality, if in history a dead man did not rise to not just resuscitated life, but to eternal resurrected immortality as a human being. If that did not happen, then Christianity is a lie. It is. Don't buy the air that is everywhere in which we believe in America now called postmodernism, uh, relativism. Whatever your truth is, is true. That's the only thing with true. There's nothing true really outside of you, not even the sex of a man or a woman. What's true is what you want to believe is true today. And that's great. You're a Christian. It's good for you. It works for you. It's true for you. That is not Christianity. 
That, that is a false demonic philosophy and world that is blinding people to their need and to the trust of the one true narrative of existence. And so, this calls us, dear believer, to absorb, to absorb into our hearts, into our minds, this great biblical narrative. Because the one true creator and judge, he is not only spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many different ways, but he has in these last days spoken to us in the coming of His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us sharper hearing, sharper spiritual hearing that will drive us deep into the Holy of Holies, your presence, because we have a high priest who sacrificed himself to cleanse us forever and to put away our sin, which then by your Spirit who has come to get us brings within us a boldness to come right into your room and find grace and mercy and power in the time of need. We love you. Oh, let the praises of your Son ring out in our closing time here. To the glory of his name and his blood. Amen.